Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This is the penultimate episode in our series, History of Ideas. Today, David discusses Catherine McKinnon's radical feminist critique of the whole basis of modern political thought. How can the state protect women from oppression if it always takes the side of men? Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas. That's lrb.me forward slash ideas. We're coming to the end of this series of talks. There's one more after this one. But before we get there, I do want to go back to the beginning briefly, not all the way back to Hobbes. I've probably said enough about Hobbes, and I'm going to say a little bit more about him today. But back to the second author that I talked about, Mary Wollstonecraft, and A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. It's probably the book that I've discussed that I like best. It's the most human of all the pieces of writing that I've been talking about. I am a little obsessed with Hobbes's Leviathan, but I'm aware that it is a bit of an inhuman book. It's probably one step away from science fiction, whereas Mary Wollstonecraft, as I said, is just one step away from Jane Austen. But Mary Wollstonecraft also poses a question, a challenge for modern politics, and I don't think we've answered it. I don't think in these talks we've got to the point where we can say what the answer is. The author I'm going to be focusing on in a bit today, the feminist Catherine McKinnon, tries to answer Mary Wollstonecraft's question, not directly, not addressed to her, but indirectly, it's addressed to us. So let me say what I think the question is, and some of the ways in which other people have tried to answer it. And then I'll say what I think McKinnon's answer is. The challenge that Mary Wollstonecraft poses goes a bit like this. We build the state. We build the modern state, the foundational idea of modern politics. And it is a kind of monster. We build it to keep us safe. It's there for our protection. We give it these special powers because we think someone or something needs those powers for our security. But we're aware that large parts of our lives will be untouched by the state. No state as Hobbes said, can do everything. And in fact, most states are going to leave most things alone. But we're also aware that those parts of our lives that are untouched by the state are not innocent. They are not places where only good things happen. In our domestic lives, in our private lives, in our personal lives, in our homes, but also in the streets, bad things happen to people and there are injustices, there are cruelties, there is violence, there is even death. So what do we want to do about all those parts of our lives that are untouched by the state, but maybe where we need protection, not the basic protection, not the protection that Hobbes was primarily thinking of, war, civil war, foreign invasion, economic collapse, but the day-to-day protection against our day-to-day oppressors? Well, you could answer that question by saying, we built this state and we can fine-tune it. 
We could re-engineer it, we could redesign it, we could empower it in different ways so that it would have the qualities needed to tackle those day-to-day injustices. Why not? It's mechanical. We fine-tune the machine. But then, and this is, I think, Wollstonecraft's challenge, how can we be sure that that state, which isn't just a machine, after all, it is the machine made out of us, its raw material is human beings, how can we be sure that the state won't replicate those injustices, those day-to-day injustices that we wanted to tackle? So rather than being the instrument that will rescue us from them, what if it becomes just another version of them? And Wollstonecraft illustrated that with the relations between men and women. Relationships which are, in many ways, fundamentally unjust, corrupt, mutually corrupting, they need remedying. But if the state is the instrument that we choose to remedy those injustices, and we don't try to make sure that the state isn't just another version of them, then we're stuck. And Wollstonecraft certainly thought that the states that she knew, the states at the end of the 18th century, did just replicate everything that was wrong with the relations between men and women. Male lust, male power, male cruelty, and then mutual dependence and mutual corruption were written all the way through the state. So if the state was going to tackle those things, it would have to tackle itself. And it's not clear that states know how to do that. That's the challenge. How can you have a state that doesn't just replicate the thing that it's trying to solve because the state is, at some level, made out of us? And I think in the series of authors I've discussed, there are two kinds of answers to that challenge. One of them I'll call the liberal answer, because that's what Catherine McKinnon calls it. And the other one, the Marxist answer, which is what McKinnon thinks is the alternative. The liberal answer to the challenge goes like this. Well, let's focus on the state as a kind of machine. Let's focus in a way on the slightly inhuman side, the mechanical, impersonal side. And let's see if we can make it as far as possible, removed from everyday injustices, removed from being like us by being something a little bit more rule-based, a little bit more mechanical if necessary. One word for it would be neutral. Let's try and build something which, as far as we can tell, is separate from the injustices it's designed to tackle. And if that means it needs to be a little bit mechanical, so be it. And if we build the state like that, we can also give ourselves protections against it. So say it doesn't quite work. We try and make a state that's impartial, that's neutral, that doesn't take sides. And yet, because it's human, it does take sides. And we find that some of these injustices that we want to tackle are simply replicated there. So we give citizens, people, rights against the state. We try to make sure that they can be protected from the arbitrariness of the state. And also that where possible, they can influence the state. They can let the state know that it's gone too far that it's making things worse, that it's got blind spots, that it doesn't know what it's doing. It's that classic modern mixture of rights and votes. You could say it's something like Constant's imagination of what a liberal state should be like, where we take trouble to tell the state when we think the state's gone too far, where we look to protect ourselves from the state, but we also recognize that if something has gone wrong in our lives, 
it will take the state at some level to sort it out. And you can have a feminist version of that argument, a liberal feminism that focuses on giving women rights, rights against people who might be oppressing them, and also rights against the state if necessary, if the state becomes one of those oppressors. And that will also include making sure that women can vote. So a classic form of modern feminism is the case for the enfranchisement of women. But not just vote, have that full range of participatory rights that ensures that the state, when it displays its partial side, gives the people who are on the other side remedies against it. That's the liberal model. And the Marxists would say of that version of politics that it's nonsense. It's completely naive to think that you can build this impartial, neutral state when we know that the society that constructed the state, if it's a bourgeois capitalist society, is going to construct a state in its own image designed to protect its injustices. So the Marxist argument says something completely different. You can't rescue people by giving them more rights. You can't rescue people by trying to ensure that the state is as neutral as possible. You have to get rid of that state. You have to replace it with something that is quite clearly different, that isn't neutral, that takes the side of the oppressed. And Marx and Engels, particularly Engels, applied this argument to family relationships, relationships between men and women, to questions of sex and gender. The Marxist argument says that men in bourgeois societies effectively own women, and the laws, the supposedly impartial laws that govern that relationship, are not neutral at all. Marriage, under conditions of capitalism, is just a kind of ownership. And there isn't that much difference between marriage and prostitution. Women are property, and men exploit them. So from the Marxist perspective, there isn't any point in saying that we could have better, more just, more equitable marriage laws if the problem is that marriage makes women property. You don't change the laws. You change the property relations. And to do that, you need a revolution. So there's a liberal argument and there's a Marxist argument, each of which tries to tackle this question, how do you stop the state from reproducing the injustices you want it to tackle? Catherine McKinnon, whose book Toward a Feminist Theory of the State is the one I'm going to be talking about today, made an argument roughly 200 years after Mary Wollstonecraft, which doesn't mention Mary Wollstonecraft, but effectively says that in those 200 years, those two answers to Wollstonecraft's challenge have shown themselves to be completely inadequate. The liberal response, the Marxist response, don't work because they don't answer the problem. Catherine McKinnon was and is a lawyer. She's not the only lawyer I've talked about in this series. Gandhi was a lawyer. Gandhi is also sometimes claimed as a kind of feminist. It's a strange kind of feminism. And Gandhi had some fairly strange attitudes towards sex in particular. He lived a peculiar life. I don't think he ever thought that his life could be a model in that respect. But he did take very seriously the role of women in society, in Indian society, as well as in Western society. He took seriously questions of oppression 
There is also a case for saying that his version of politics, nonviolence as its fundamental principle, was in his mind a kind of feminine politics to set against the masculine politics of violence and coercion. But to call Gandhi a feminist, you have to extract a kind of feminism from his thought. Feminism is an offshoot of some of the other principles that animate his writing. And that's true of most forms of feminism, certainly in McKinnon's eyes. The liberal answer is not feminism first, liberalism second. It's liberalism first. It has liberal principles. And then it tries to apply those principles to the woman question, as it used to be called. The same with Marxism. Marxism starts not with what happens between men and women. It starts with what happens between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And then it tries to apply that argument to everything else, including gender and sex relations. McKinnon says that therefore these things are not fundamentally feminism. In an article, which is one of the chapters eventually of this book, published a few years before 1989, the year that Toward a Feminist Theory of the State came out, McKinnon makes the point as clearly as possible. She says there are all sorts of different kinds of feminism, liberal feminism, Marxist feminism. There are probably 57 varieties. She doesn't list them. But you can have any kind of feminism you want. You just take a principle and then apply it to the question of how women are treated in society. You can have ecological feminism. You can have vegetarian feminism. But McKinnon says radical feminism is feminism. The radical form of feminism is the one that starts with feminism, doesn't end up there. And she says, if you start with feminism, then you see that the liberal version and the Marxist version are not ultimately about the defense of women against men. They're about something else. And because they're about something else, they don't answer the question. So what's wrong with liberal feminism in McKinnon's eyes? She thinks the problem with it is the false attempt to create something in modern society that we can call a neutral state, impartial, not biased towards one side or the other, so not going to replicate any of the injustices that it tries to tackle. It's going to stand above them. It won't take sides. It will look at the evidence on its merits. It will be, in a way, mechanical. It won't look like human prejudice and human passion. And that's meant to be its salvation. And that's meant to be our salvation. The liberal state rescues us from the worst of ourselves. But McKinnon says, if you have a fundamentally unjust society because the relations between men and women left alone are fundamentally unjust, they are oppressive, men oppress women, then a neutral arbiter, a kind of neutral umpire, isn't going to rectify the injustice. Neutrality is what replicates the injustice, because the neutral arbiter under those conditions doesn't change a thing. McKinnon thought that basically the liberal state was the male state. It tried to conceal that by saying it wasn't taking sides. But as she says, any woman who has tried to deal with the state knows that in not taking sides, the state takes the man's side because it is often made up of men. It sees the world as men see the world and it calls it neutrality. So one way to think about this is an analogy. This is not from McKinnon, it's from me. I think she might hate this analogy. 
but it works for me. And I'm not trying to make a point here about gender relations, about men and women. You can think of any example you like, but imagine a sports contest. Pick your sport. Could be football, could be netball, could be anything. And those sports can be played by men or women. It doesn't matter. Think of a team sport and imagine a contest between the under-18s in that team sport and the under-12s. And then imagine it's played by the rules, whatever the rules of that sport are, which are designed to be fair and impartial. And then team sports almost always have an umpire or a referee whose job is not to pick sides. In fact, whose job, as far as possible, is to be completely impartial and simply apply the rules. So you have a contest between those two teams and everybody plays by the rules. The under-18s play by the rules, the under-12s play by the rules. So if it's a football match, the under-18s tackle the under-12s and they tackle them fairly. It's not done with violence, it's not a foul. And the under-18s will always win. That, for McKinnon, is a bit like a society in which there is deep structural injustice and bias. And then you throw in a neutral referee and you tell that neutral referee to play by the rules. And that referee will apply the rules fairly and in doing so will guarantee that the side that always wins will win again. McKinnon says that one way to illustrate the failings of liberalism is through the concept that I talked about in relation to Constant, the idea of negative liberty, so beloved of so many different kinds of liberals, the idea that we need to be protected against the arbitrary power of the state, precisely because actually the state is not often impartial, that the state has prejudices and it has extreme powers that can be very damaging for individuals if there aren't safeguards against them. And as McKinnon says, Lots of people are really drawn to the idea of negative liberty because they feel they want to be protected from the arbitrary power of the state. They want to be free to lead their own lives, to make their own mistakes, to do what they want with their bodies, with their property, with their beliefs, with their values. The idea of negative liberty supposes that we are the masters of our destiny. And McKinnon says of negative liberty that it's the kind of idea that appeals to the people who don't need it. The people who would really need it don't want it because they know it doesn't work. The kind of people who love it but don't need it are men and also people of property. If you think you want to lead a life when you're free to make your own mistakes, it's almost always because you think you can afford to make your own mistakes, because you think that no mistake will be fatal. It's a little like Tocqueville on America. Tocqueville thought that America could afford to make mistakes because no mistake would be fatal. And in the end, that meant political complacency. For McKinnon, any individual who thinks that no mistake will be fatal is already being protected by the system. And you know that when you think about the people for whom one mistake can be fatal. And they know that not only does the system not protect them, but the system takes the side of the people who can afford to make mistakes. Negative liberty does no good to the people who would actually benefit from it because they need a different system. So that might make it sound as though McKinnon should be a Marxist or at least a defender of some idea of positive liberty, which is usually held up as the antithesis of negative liberty. If it's not enough just to be protected from 
arbitrary power and arbitrary interference because you need the capacity or the capability to be able to lead a fulfilling life. Then don't we need the kind of state that gives you that? But McKinnon says the Marxist version of that argument makes the other fatal category error by assuming that you can transplant a state based on redressing class injustice onto all other kinds of injustice. Because if you address class injustice, the other kinds fall away. So there is at the back of the Marxist idea the thought that when you have the right kind of political revolution that puts the workers in charge, everything else, marriage, domestic relations, workplace relations, the harmonization of all social and human relationships will just follow. And McKinnon says there is absolutely no reason to think that that is true. Why would the injustices that exist between men and women fall away just because the workers are in charge, especially since the workers are going to be imagined on almost all Marxist theories to be men? McKinnon uses a very striking phrase to describe what she thinks is left behind after the Marxists have got their state. She says the Marxist version of feminism leaves women at the mercy of what she calls civil society. That is, the state rectifies what Marxists think are the fundamental injustices of property relations. And then what's left is what we can call society. Socialism is, among other things, the ism of society against politics. In the ideal Marxist theory, the state more or less disappears. You don't need it. Society can rule itself. And a society that rules itself, for McKinnon, is the state of nature. She says, of the Marxist theory of feminism, under it, women are left to civil society, which for women has more closely resembled the state of nature. That is Hobbes's phrase. But in a way, what McKinnon is doing and what she's saying is that the Hobbesian version of the state of nature doesn't make sense. So if you think back to Hobbes, his basic assumption about what happens to human beings, not women, but human beings, under conditions where there is just a natural relationship, is equality, in the sense that we are all equally vulnerable. That is Hobbes's basic assumption about the human condition, that an individual, no matter how smart, no matter how strong, no matter how agile, no matter how adept or cunning or devious or wicked, all individuals are vulnerable because the human being is a vulnerable animal. We have these big brains, we have these fragile bodies, we're easy to kill. For Hobbes, the basic fact about the state of nature is that anyone could kill anyone. If you are asleep, when your back is turned, when your guard is down, when you are inattentive, you're never safe. So the Hobbesian state is created to protect individuals against that basic equality of vulnerability, to create something so powerful that no individual can stand up to it, and therefore it can protect all the other individuals. But what McKinnon says is once you've done that, once you've structured your political society so that the state is there to protect you, you then leave the underlying fact of the state of nature untouched. And if you strip away that state because you think you've remedied the fundamental injustice so that everyone is just left in a condition of civil society, 
you leave that underlying fact as the primary fact. And the primary fact of the state of nature for McKinnon is that we are not equal. It's not the case that anyone could kill anyone. The primary fact is that men kill women. More men kill women than women kill men. Many, many more men kill women than women kill men because it is not equal. It is unequal. And society structured on that inequality without a state leaves women at the mercy of their state of nature. So McKinnon is using Hobbesian language, but she is rejecting the premise that underlies that version of the state. And she thinks neither the liberal nor the Marxist version of feminism does anything to address the underlying problem. So hers is a kind of total critique of all the things that I've been talking about in this series. No one has answered the question. It's a total critique of the idea of the modern state as it has evolved since Hobbes. She says explicitly of the author who gives the most famous definition of that conception of the state, Weber, that he doesn't answer the question. He just perpetuates the problem that the state was meant to solve. So Weber's definition is that the state is that association that successfully claims the monopoly of legitimate violence. The state is where we put violence and we allow it because we want that violence to rescue us from other violence. And as McKinnon says, in any state of that kind, a lot of violence will be left unaddressed. Above all, the violence that exists between men and women men against women. And if you have a society in which you say that the state is the only organisation that is allowed to commit violence, and yet that state allows other forms of violence to continue, you can say that the state has legitimated all the violence that it allows. So when the state allows men to continue to commit violence against women, the Weberian definition leads us to assume that the state makes that violence legitimate. So the state, for women, has failed its basic function. It doesn't work. McKinnon also essentially rejects the idea that modernity itself, modern politics, is the great transformation that its prophets like Hobbes claim for it. That somehow when you build modern politics, you put all that medieval superstition behind, that you transform the world from something messy and ugly and violent into something clean and mechanical and efficient. There is a famous definition from the 19th century of what distinguishes the pre-modern from the modern world. It's another catchphrase. And it says that what happened when modernity arrived was that we moved from a world of status to a world of contract. So the status world is where you get your way because of who you are because you are this person or that person, this lord, the son of that man, that you have this title, that you came into the world with these benefits attached. And contract is the liberal ideal, the idea that we transact with each other. And so we find our relationship with each other by testing out what will this person allow, what will that person allow. And as we move from status to contract on this Victorian account, 
we move towards freedom. There are lots of reasons, not just the Marxist reasons, to think that that's a pretty crude and unconvincing account. But what McKinnon says is that it mistakes the fact that we ever left status behind. McKinnon makes it explicit in Toward a Feminist Theory of the State. She says once you can see the social stratification that underlies modern political and modern social life, you will notice that what she calls the status categories basic to medieval law, thought to have been superseded by liberal regimes, are revealed deeply unchanged. Men, under liberal regimes, still have status. Women don't. And that status determines the outcome of neutral contests. Because if you put neutrality on top of status, the people with the status always win. And McKinnon applies this across the board, not just to crimes of violence, but also to the basic desire for women to redress economic and other inequalities, the desire for basic modern rights. So sex discrimination, which is a fundamental feature of the liberal attempt to rectify the imbalances and the injustices by introducing anti-discrimination legislation to make it easier and fairer for women to get the same as men for McKinnon, is completely inadequate as an approach. It's the fundamental problem with neutrality as the basic principle of law. As she says, the law is neutral. It gives little to women that it cannot also give to men, maintaining sex inequality while also appearing to address it. If men have the status and women can't get things that men are not entitled to, women will lose. It is a bit like that contest between the under-18s and the under-12s. The only way the under-12s will ever win that match is if the law does not apply equally and fairly to both sides. If one side needs help to win, and you think that there is good reason why that side should sometimes, or maybe even always win, you do have to drop the principle of neutrality and you have to address the fundamental structural injustice and imbalance, which pre-exists the laws, pre-exists the rule, pre-exists the game. It comes into the game like that. The game doesn't decide who's up, who's down. We knew who was up and who was down before it started. The under-18s were always going to win. The referee cannot be a neutral referee if the under-12s are ever going to have a chance. So although McKinnon rejects Hobbesian notions of how politics should work, and certainly she rejects the idea that anything fundamentally changed when we created the modern representative state, there is at the back of this argument a basic Hobbesian premise, and I think it's no coincidence that McKinnon's happy to use the language of the state of nature. The state exists to use its violence against other forms of violence. So the question is always, what are the forms of violence that we think we have to have the state in order to address? And McKinnon is arguing against many, many different versions of modern politics, but she is not arguing against the basic idea that we need the state. The liberal state for McKinnon is inadequate. The Marxist state that withers away after the revolution it never really withers away, but in the ideal version it's meant to, is inadequate because it doesn't do the job that's required of it 
which is to address the violence that pre-exists the state and will continue unless the state tackles it. It is, in that sense, a Hobbesian conception of politics. You need to use force and coercion to counteract force and coercion, because nothing else will do. It's a little bit like Fanon, Fanon who said that the only thing that can counter violence is violence, but it's also nothing like Fanon, because Fanon was a Marxist, and Fanon did believe in the possibility of a form of violence that would ultimately transform the state, create something that was postmodern, after now, the future, in which all of these relationships would somehow be rectified. And I think there's almost nothing in Fanon that would give anyone any confidence that the relations between men and women would be rectified through his version of violence. Catherine McKinnon's known for many practical campaigns, as well as writing works of political theory. And the one for which she's probably best known is her argument against pornography. So pornography is one illustration, it's only one, but it's one illustration of how the wider theoretical argument might work. Because pornography, for McKinnon, is a form of violence against women. It depicts violence. And for people who say it's just the representation of violence, it's not actual violence. McKinnon says, in societies like ours, the representation of violence is a replication of actual violence. So pornography is what it does. It is what it represents. But pornography is a very difficult issue for many people who think about politics, above all for liberals. For some liberals, it's not a difficult issue, particularly as they stray towards libertarianism. For some people, it's a very simple issue. It's a question of freedom. It's a question of rights of free speech, free expression, freedom of contract. If people want to make money that way, if women see pornography as a means to make a living, who are we to stop them? If people wish to consume pornography, who are we to prevent them? We will prevent, even most liberals think, the committing of acts of violence and harm which are unequivocal in the creation of pornography. But if pornography is just a representation, and in that representation people are free to choose how they are to behave, and people are free to choose what they want to consume, then it becomes a question of rights. So we outlaw pornography that we decide maybe is obscene in some way, either because of the way it's made, or because it does represent things that we just think are intolerable for a decent society. But most forms of pornography in most liberal societies are allowed, because it's thought to be an issue of freedom. So liberals, on the whole, not always, but on the whole, will tolerate pornography. Marxists often think, as with many other things, that if you can rectify the basic, fundamental, structural problem with modern society, other problems will fall away. So after the revolution, there's kind of no need for pornography, because people will be free free to love whom they want. They will find the kind of freedom of expression. So Marxists often think that pornography is something that oughtn't to be allowed because it's not needed. And the actual Marxist societies, that is, those societies that had a so-called Marxist revolution and then instituted what they like to call communist regimes, tended to be quite puritanical about pornography and much more likely to outlaw it 
than liberal societies. One of my enduring memories as a student, and this is, I think, from 1989, so the year that Catherine McKinnon published Toward a Feminist Theory of the State, which I have to say I did not read when I was a student, also the year that the Berlin Wall came down, the subject of the next talk. In 1989, early that year, I think in the spring, I went to Romania, then still a so-called communist society, run by Ceausescu, one of the worst of all of the dictators of Eastern Europe. And I travelled a lot in Eastern Europe at that time, to Poland, to Hungary, to East Germany, to what used to be called Czechoslovakia. But Romania was definitely the worst. It was, by 1989, a deeply oppressive, very poor and miserable society, full of lovely people. And part of the reason I liked to travel in Eastern Europe is that people were so friendly and it was very easy to make friends once you got there. It wasn't always that easy to get in. But once you were there, people were open and they welcomed you into their homes. And as a student aged 20, 21, traveling in Romania, I became friends with another group of mixed, some young, some middle-aged people. And they invited me to one of their houses where they were having a kind of gathering. And it was clear it was a gathering of people who were if not dissidents, I think by that point in Romania, most people were fed up, very fed up with the regime. A mix of men and women, we talked, they fed me. It was lovely. And then towards the end of the evening, and I was with a friend, a male friend, the men in the room said that the women needed to go home now, and so the women left. But they invited us to stay for what was going to be the culmination of the evening. And they took us downstairs to the basement and they drew the curtains and they put on a film and it was West German pornography. And we sat and we were meant to watch it in a kind of reverential state. And it was one of the most disillusioning moments of my life and I can still remember it and I can still remember thinking, is this what freedom means for them? Never mind the social embarrassment, it was politically embarrassing. And I didn't know what to think or what to say. And so, as they used to say, we made our excuses and left. Pornography has always been, among many other things, a very difficult question because it does seem to touch on fundamental issues of freedom. But McKinnon says it's not a difficult question because we should remember that the state exists to protect us from violence. And so if pornography is not actually a question of obscenity, we have other laws that we can use to deal with it. We do not have to tolerate it. We do not have to assume it's about people's rights to express themselves, to enjoy themselves. McKinnon's argument is that pornography is more like human trafficking than it is like freedom of expression, that the people who are involved in pornography are almost always in some ways coerced and they are almost always the victims of much deeper structural injustices, inequalities and latent violence. And we know what to do about trafficking. We know what to do when we discover that human beings are being forced and moved around and held and employed and exploited against their will. We liberate them. We don't worry about the rights and the freedoms of the people who are holding them. We liberate the oppressed. And therefore, what you need to do with pornography, 
is treat it as a form of human trafficking. And what do we do in good liberal societies about human trafficking? We do everything in our power to outlaw it. We ban it. We suppress it. We use violence against it, the violence of the state. This is still a state-based argument. But it's a state-based argument that says all the other state-based arguments I've been talking about in this series are inadequate because we've forgotten what the state is for. The state is for us, and if we, in this case, are women, the state has left us unprotected. That argument, both about pornography and more widely about how the state should use its power, is deeply controversial. It's deeply controversial within feminism. It's deeply controversial, if you can say this, outside of feminism. Not all feminists agree, and almost all non-feminists don't agree. A lot has changed in the world, and a lot has changed in feminism since 1989. There are lots of different kinds of arguments about lots of different kinds of issues. It's not all about pornography. And even people who don't object to McKinnon's arguments on what you might call liberal grounds, and there are still many liberal feminists who do not like the idea that pornography should simply be banned. There are also people for whom McKinnon's argument is too legalistic. It is state-based, but it's also law-based. She's a lawyer. Many of her writings are quite technical writings about the law. And there are many forms of feminism which want to get beyond a legalistic conception, that want to think about other questions, questions of culture and performance and identity. But something else has changed too since 1989. Pornography has changed. It's not got worse, but it's certainly got more pervasive. When I think about my experience in Romania in 1989, and then I think about Romania now, I haven't been back to Romania, I should say. But I'm sure that pornography is as available in Romania as it is just about anywhere. China's one of the last places on earth because it still thinks of itself as a Marxist society that's trying to hold the line against pornography and, frankly, is failing. Pornography is ubiquitous in the age of the internet. It's almost impossible to imagine how you would ban it now, how you would suppress it or repress it or tackle the traffickers who you believe are inflicting violence against women by allowing this representation of violence to be freely available. Pornography is everywhere because information is now everywhere, and 1989 feels like more than just a generation ago. 1989 is not the pre-modern world, but it is in a way the pre-digital world. I can't remember what technology was used in Romania to show those films, but it definitely wasn't coming through the internet. And so there is a fundamental question that is still unresolved in this analysis of politics. And you could say it is the basic question now, and it's the one that I'm going to talk about, not in relation to McKinnon or feminism, or pornography, but more broadly in the last of these talks. In the age of the internet, of that kind of interconnectivity, that ubiquity of information, something that goes beyond freedom to become almost like the air that we breathe, and pornography in some ways in the age that we live in now, is everywhere to the point that people almost don't notice it. Does the state still have enough power? It's all very well to say, we built the state 
and we gave it that coercive authority, that ability to wield violence, to protect us. But in 2020, we can ask the question, we gave it that power, but is it enough? You can find more details of McKinnon's writing in our show notes or at our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Next week is our last episode in this series. Appropriately, it's Fukuyama and the end of history. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.